Rodney, my man, what's happening today? Zinc. Zinc. I'm oh, I didn't give you one when we went to Costa Rica, but uh I have these little zinc tablets that I, I take for immunity immunity. Mm. Immunity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. Sure. Helps boost the uh the old immune system. Okay. Zinc is good for I guess killing viri and <laughs> germs in the uh viruses. Mouthful, <laughs> in the mouth in the mouthful area. <laughs> Uh, you know, Vira, you don't like Vira? That's good. <laughs> Haven't heard that one before. The false plural of viruses. Mm-hmm. Zinc. That's a, it's like a, yeah. Anyhow, when I, when I'm getting sick and whatnot, if I feel something coming on, like the, you know, those, the, the nodules in the, in the throat, mm-hmm. they start swelling up. Get a little up. frog in your throat, as they once said. A little froggy. Yeah. Start taking my zinc and my vitamin D, maybe a little bit of vitamin C, but mainly the D and the zinc mm. feel so much better. That's interesting. But also when I'm traveling, when I travel, zinc and, uh, oh, I got another one that I have to tell you later, but zinc, it's money. That's cool. All right. Well, chalk it up to another thing that Keith won't try. Close-minded. Close-minded. Bonjour. Welcome. Hello. This is the More In Common Podcast. I am one of the co-hosts, Rodney. And with me, well, kind of with me, digitally with me. Look, it's 2021. Spiritually. the way we do it. What connectedness, up, Connectedness, energy, hola. How you doing today? I am your other co-host, Keith. And of course, as we always like to do, is remind you why we're all here. We're all about compassionate conversation with that fundamental belief that compassion is earned simply because we all exist. We all share a common human experience in some form or fashion. And giving compassion doesn't mean you have to agree with the other person. It doesn't mean you have to like the other person. It just means have some compassion for their existence. And I tell you, if you practice it and you try it and you work hard at it, it will change the way you see others and your own life. And that's what we're here to do. Is practice it, demonstrate it, and get to know some amazing people like our guest today, Melissa Weintraub. Yeah, Melissa. One of the smartest individuals I've ever spoken to. And, you know, okay, so I'm just going to throw this out there. She started with, like, the hardest thing that I know of, peace in the Middle East, in in Israel, of all places. That's where I'm going to start. I'm like, all right, let's go. Like, and she has some amazing insights about what causes division, why people split and separate and can't come back together, and what needs to be done to break that down. And it's not just conversation. It's not just action. It's this beautiful, messy mix of all of it. But she explains it far better than I ever could because, as I mentioned at the top, she's wickedly intelligent. No, yeah. that's not even right. She's just intelligent. And, and I'll tell you, like, she takes this dynamic of complex conversation to bridge gaps between very polarized spaces. She basically takes what we do and makes, m- makes it look like an a elementary school teaching of conversation and brings, like, an eighth-degree PhD level to it. Um, she's amazing. 
learn a lot from her and we're really, really excited to bring this conversation to you. But before we do, moreincommonent.com. Find all things more in common. I'm going to leave it there so we can get on to this conversation with Melissa. Let's do it. I think it's because I was at an elementary school where my father was sweeping to the school to to explain to my teachers again and again that singing songs about Christ our Savior isn't inclusive. Um, You know, again and again every year that when I went to Israel and I heard the national anthem, I was asking, who does this national anthem not represent? Where are they? And I want to listen to them. You know, like who does not feel represented by this? Um, Because I, I had that kind of uh, bifocal vision is, is how I think of it, where you're inside and you're outside simultaneously and thinking about who's outside, whatever I'm in. Like, I'm always looking for the person who feels excluded by what's happening. Um, so I think that that was driven by my childhood experiences. Welcome back. I am your co-host Keith with my man Rodney and today Today, we are with Melissa Weintraub. Melissa, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. We are excited to have you. Now, Melissa is the co-founding executive director of Resetting the Table, an organization dedicated to building dialogue and deliberation across political divides, which if you've been listening to our podcast, you know why we are having her on this show. Uh, Melissa was all also the founding director of Encounter, an organization dedicated to strengthening the capacity of the Jewish people to be agents of change in resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Melissa was awarded the Grinnell Young Innovator for Social Justice Prize, which honors demonstrated leadership and extraordinary accomplishment in affecting positive social change. A noted speaker and educator, Melissa has lectured and taught in hundreds of public forums on four continents. She was ordained as a conservative rabbi at the Jewish Theological Seminary and graduated from Harvard University, summa cum laude. And she is a mom a great one who cares deeply about people, and we are so thrilled to have you on this show. I'm so glad to be here. So glad. So, to be here. I mean, so many places we can go. Yeah. So I'm going to go in a place that I am eternally curious because we don't talk to a lot of people who are in the conversation game, and um, you have been um, at least on the show. We talk to people in the in in, in partnerships and other things, but. Um, and you've been at this uh, far longer than we have. And so I have a two-part question to kick okay. this off. What was your inspiration to start? And what have you found to be the biggest difficulty getting people to the table? Mm, great questions. Okay. Well, there's a lot of, lot of ways into that question, but maybe I'll start with um, some personal story that will help kind of contextualize the inspirations. Um, So my professional roots, as you said, um, were on working on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I spent 25 years working on that conflict. um, And how I got into that work and this work, um, there's of course many ways into that, but I'll fast forward to 2004, which is definitely the middle of the story. Um, 2004 found me kind of shuttling between Palestinian young leadership conferences and American Jewish young leadership conferences, birthday barbecues, and 
Ramallah in the West Bank and rabbinical seminary in Jewish Jerusalem. And that meant I felt like I was living in the twilight zone. You may be able to relate to this. And some of your listeners who do bridge building work may be able to relate to this. I was moving between worlds of people that were fixated with each other, that talked about each other all the time, but had very little actual contact with each other's narratives, lived experiences, realities, and many of whom regarded each other as beyond sympathy. This was the end of the second intifada. And essentially my life had become a bridge and I decided that I needed to bring as many people as I could across that bridge. Um, in part, there, that, that was a lonely position. You know, there was a kind of aloneness to being in this position of moving between worlds, but I also being in that position came to see that mutual recognition was really at the heart of this conflict more than any of the technical issues that negotiations broke down around security and um, the status of Jerusalem and refugees and that what was behind so many of those issues was a lack of mutual recognition that drove a lot of harm um, because people, each people was committing acts of harm in the name of self-protection because of who they thought the other was. Um, and so much of the conflict was about a kind of impasse of distrust and, and projection and, and mutual perception. Um, so I think that what has, what, what drove me then, what has dr driven me since, and I've come to work on kind of social conflicts in the U.S. that we'll talk much more about as well. Um, but what has driven me was a sense of how all of these people who didn't ever talk to each other needed each other's perspectives um, and needed each other's perspectives to correct each other's blind spots. And that if each, if people in each of these worlds could take in each other's points of view that we just might amass the goodwill and collective insight and creative problem solving that we need to solve the conflict. So to the second part, because I like two part questions. And yes, I, I didn't answer the second part of your question. But I should I need to just stop asking two part questions. Like it really <laughs> just needs to be out of my repertoire. But like every your answer tease up that second question really well in a way I probably wouldn't have known going in, but to see why they think what they think, like what is the most difficult part of that in that journey of being a bridge builder? What's the most difficult part of getting people to see each other's point of view yeah, or to come to the them, table? I guess just to come to the table. To just to come to the table. Yeah. 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 So I think getting them to the table in a sense is the most difficult part because there's a lot of things that can be done once people are at the table. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can talk about each each piece of that. But in terms of getting people to the table, the biggest obstacles, I think, are suspicion and distrust. So and, and what's going to happen to me once I'm there and why should I come? So uh, that can mean suspicion and distrust of the convener, the bridge builder. And we get a, we especially when we're new to a community and we don't have credibility built up and we don't have relationships built up, then we get suspicion and um, distrust from all sides. And I can talk more about how that played itself out in the Israeli-Palestinian work. Um, but, you know, a lot of, as well as in the U.S. work, but around the Israeli-Palestinian work, there just often be a sense of what's your real agenda? In some way, what's kind of underneath it, do you want to, in some way, lead me into, manipulate me into betraying myself and my own people? Is there some way that you are going to like, lead me to betray my fundamental values 
and to be a traitor uh, on some level, you know, to leave to leave my values and my people behind. I do want to kind of go into that because that with what's happening in the in the states right now around social justice. I mean, personally, I felt this some because I've been hit up by a lot of my white friends and colleagues. And like, I have a little bit of the feeling, but I know a lot of my friends, black friends that I've talked to are like, yeah, like, I'm not I'm not here for it. Like, it's all performative. And I'm like, eh, is it all? But how did like, how do you deal with those feelings? Or how did you deal with those feelings? Will you say a little bit more about what you get? You yeah, get pushback. It's all performative. Like, they're just really just trying to make themselves feel good and reinscribe power cover over. Yeah, that's a good summary. I, yeah, for, I'll just speak for myself and not for anybody else. I'll, I'll say that there's a there's a lot of fatigue around just my understanding of what it's like to be black in America. And then, yeah, um, you know, George Floyd. Well, you may or may not know if you're listening, but George Floyd happens and he's murdered and the outpour uh, is overwhelming in many senses. The fact that there is one, because he's not the first African-American man to be killed in a similar way. And so people reaching out after that felt, I, I couldn't tell if it was genuine or not. Because I'm like, where, where were you with the last 27 of these? And so there's this, there's this confusion for me. Like, what's going on? Like, what made this different? And now there is a lot that's different. We've got COVID. We're stuck at home. People had to see it. Then there's the, we're in the conversation and there's questions like, what do I do? How are you? Um, all, again, all questions that weren't there in the past. So it's just like, how do I how do how do I feel in this? And then what's my role, me, the black dude to educate and or to uh -huh. participate in your newfound? I'll say wokeness yeah. because that's what the kids say. But uh, your newfound elevation of state. From from my standpoint, uh, I'm highly willing to participate in those conversations. There is a huge mental toll and mm -hmm. came to a point where I just had this like I stopped answering texts and calls. I didn't even mm -hmm. say I'll get back to you later. I was just like done. Just couldn't mm -hmm. do it anymore. So I could see how a community that's been dealing with this for hundreds of years would have just no appetite to even mm -hmm. have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, those are. Yeah, there's just a fatigue and a, an exhaustion from the onus being put on you to have to be the explainer again and again, right? To have yeah. to educate into awareness, right? Exactly. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So the what you're, you know, I hesitate sometimes to make too many parallels because situations don't fully map onto each other, and and contexts are different. But there's there's echoes in terms of what you're saying, also in terms of what it meant to bring Palestinians to the table to do this work in 2004. And a lot of the Palestinians who'd been involved in dialogue efforts in the 80s and 90s and who I had built long relationships with at that point were just done with dialogue. Like, it, we're, we are done. Um, and there was a, a, a spirit of uh, what was called anti-normalization and is still called anti-normalization, which essentially means we don't normalize relationships unless you're coming to ameliorate the conditions of our lives and stand in solidarity with us. Like there is no more room for dialogue without action. Don't come and clear your conscience. Come in here from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and make yourself feel good talking to me and doing nothing to change my circumstances, doing nothing to address my suffering. And that was really where people had just come to. Like they were done with 
all of these dialogue efforts that were supposed to awaken people and um, and then not change anything. And a lot of the dialogue world in in the that conflict, which had built up in the 80s and 90s, went in this direction of no dialogue without action, no dialogue without solidarity. Like we do dialogue in order to take nonviolent action together to in, in service of justice. Um, my personal take is that there is tremendous need for that work and it can't, it can't be successful alone because part of what happens in that work is that the dialogue work world becomes even more of an echo chamber talking to itself than it was before. And in part because I had these long relationships with Palestinian friends and activists of trust and that had been built up over time, uh, we there was a lot of conversation about creating a different model. And some of the impatience and frustration with dialogue as an end in and of itself was about reaching the same people and those people not necessarily being in influential positions to change anything. And we created a model that was about dialogue as a mechanism of social change, but um, where action is not prescribed or required, and they felt that they were having a, an impact that was important because they were reaching unusual suspects. They were reaching new people. They were reaching multipliers. And that was very satisfying to them. So, yeah. On the action, the nest and need for action. And like I was just speaking from my point of view, I would say that there are like there are tons of parallels, especially if you go back to the civil rights movement and say white actors not actors, but individuals wanting to go into black communities to help, like got the exact same responses. Like, yo, like if you're not, if you're not going to fix this, like we don't want to talk about it. Um, right. And that's happening now as well. I think there's a little bit more appetite for talking, but on the talking with need for action, it's a sword that's in my, from what I've seen. And I'm curious to get your take. It's a sword that can cut both ways um, on just talking to talk. Obviously that is, that creates its own problems and echo chambers and just people feel feel better because they're just talking but then when there's talking and then straight to action a lot of times there's a lack of understanding of what actually needs to be acted upon so what mm -hmm. happened isn't necessarily helping the people that it's intended to help mm -hmm. but that's just just from what i've seen what what do you think about that so so i think there's there's both uh the reflection, deliberation, the good, the healthy communication and challenging each other that's needed to get aligned in order to take action that is actually productive, constructive, healthy, et cetera. Um, where people, you know, and, and where white people are really listening, you know, that's like a piece of it um, and getting it. Predicating talk on being paired with action limits those that it can reach because it can only reach those who are already ready to be in solidarity. And that is a as as I see it, a mistake, because there need to be other forms of meeting ground that can reach potential allies, that can that can allow for the, the transformative potential of human interaction. Back to your what inspires me, that is another thing that inspires me, the transformative potential of human interaction. And uh, that requires being in conversation with people who aren't ready to take action with you on this train because i think about this often and i've heard it from organizations with especially after george floyd and some of the calls um within the partner ecosystem of conversation work that have been just doing it for a long time and that just exhaustion that hits it's like we keep talking about this 
and nothing materially is changing to the level that I want to see it change. Right. It's like, it's, it's changing, but it's not happening at the, at the big scale yet. We always need conversation to be part of the formula because if you stop having it, then people will go into the antithesis echo chamber that resists whatever could be potential for change from action because we will resist action until we understand it. Like it's just human nature, right? Do you though see, it almost seems like no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the conflict, no matter what the frustration, people just get exhausted talking about it. And I think you frame it well in that it's not about just having, it's not just talking about it. Like it's, it's, and it's not just acting about it. It's making constructive learned difference from dialogue. Would you agree with that? And that is a perpetual and forever ongoing um, activity that can never be removed from the equation. It can never just be action or conversation with intent for action. Like conversation is action itself. Would you, would you say that? Yeah. Well, I think that when conversation is a kind of radical action, it's usually because it's bringing people together who are highly estranged and alienated and the alienation and estrangement is having a lot of negative impact. That's political, that's structural, that's systemic. So, um, yeah, I was just on the phone yesterday with a friend of mine, Zach Metz, who wrote his dissertation about this. He's turning it into a book. And it's it's basically about the way in the face of intractable conflict internationally, and also now this is playing out domestically in the U.S., in the face of intractable conflict, bringing people together who would never be around the table together, who are diametrically opposed, who have dehumanized each other, who are at the point where they think they can only be vanquished, they can't be reasoned with, they can't be talked to. That is that becomes a radical action when when it transforms the people who are there, even to be there, you know, to be around the table together. Have you? Was it, what was the it hotel in, in Israel that was Hotel in, Corona? Is hotel what they Corona. Call it. Uh-huh. The, have yeah. you have you heard that about that story? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, I, I think I actually wrote it down ten minutes ago, Keith. So yeah, so did I. My <laughs> I, just, mind. I wrote. Oh yeah, <laughs> ten minutes ago as well. Um, it, it's it's such a fascinating case study in the potential for human beings when we get out of our own way and when we ascribe our identity to external factors and that's all we think ourselves to be, then that is always a threat versus mm-hmm. finding our identity within ourselves of who we actually are. And those things are valuable to who we are, but they don't make us who mm-hmm. we are. We're less at threat by other people's thoughts, ideas, and and, and counter opinions. Um, I don't, I don't know how you do that at scale, the identity piece, because, you know, when you're bringing people together, you're, you're, you're almost anchoring on the tenants that this is your identity and this is their identity. And now how do we bridge that gap versus changing who they think they are? But um, well, actually it's such a question a cause on it. a question on that. Cause you earlier, Melissa, you said, um, acts of they were perpetrating acts of harm based on the perception of what the other is. So I heard that and I was like, oh, they're making assumptions. But I think it's more. I mean, it was a beautiful definition of assumption. Uh, but then what Keith's talking about, like the self-identity, which may be external, how have they, in the conflict that you worked in and the conflicts that you've worked in, what was the balance? Was it more about the assumptions made of the other or was it more about the I, the strength of the, 
the threat of identity. Yeah, the threat of identity. Say more about what you mean by the threat of identity. I'm a Christian conservative who believes Jesus is the coming, the next coming. You are Jewish. You don't believe in Jesus as God's child. You believe him to be a great man in the history of humankind. Mm. The, the, that very idea that I, 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 in this hypothetical, um, believe of Jesus to be much larger and you may not believe it, that not belief of it is a challenge to my fundamental identity of belief in, in him being whoever your, may be. your being attacks who I am. Correct. Mm-hmm. Your very existence, your very thought introduces a counter narrative that cannot be true because if it's true then i'm wrong i don't know who i am yeah yeah Yeah, i hear that i mean in terms of like kind of rewinding to the question that you asked about what's the bigger threat is it the threat of my identity or my perception of who you are right is that what that's what your question was yeah? yeah yeah i think My experience has been that groups that come to the table generally have a lot of perception of their own nuance as individuals and as a group. Like there's so much complexity and nuance to who I am. I'm not just in this box. Don't pigeonhole me. I'm not just this. But you are. Yeah. Like I I think I'm, I'm not in the box because... I study the issues and I do my research and I am in conversation with all kinds of people and I'm open to being challenged. These are all the nuances of of my position. And they don't tend to see the nuances and complexity and integrity of the parties that they're coming into contact with. So this was true very much around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in Jewish-Palestinian dialogue work I've done. It's also true in the U.S. context. There tend to be these kind of sweeping generalizations, conflations of the other side, where there is a projection onto them of the most monstrous and vile understandings of who they are. Uh, I think that this is happening in, in both directions around red-blue divides in the U.S. today. There's a, a among progressives, a, these sweeping generalizations of who all Trump supporters are and what really motivates them. Even the, the term Trump supporter is problematic. We immersed in an area of rural Wisconsin and Iowa that flipped Obama to Trump. It was the heart of the area that flipped Obama to Trump in 2016. We did 330 interviews there, hour-long interviews, taking in what motivated people, what was of deepest concern to people, like really listening to people. And just all of these studies about what really motivated Trump supporters, like never talked to a person. There's so much mind reading in them. And people voted for Trump for so many reasons who wouldn't identify as a Trump supporter, Mm -hmm. right? And there's just, there's so much nuance and complexity that's lost in these perceptions of the other. And this is really what drives the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in my view. Like you are single-mindedly a liar out to get me. And so you, whatever I give you, you will take it with, you know, take all the more with the other hand. And so I have to protect myself and that self-protection drives all kinds of destructive and then what fundamental like and this just goes to a more macro point not necessarily on the on the conversation of of dialogue political propaganda regardless of what you're talking about understands that psychology of us versus them and our propensity to simplify you become you know understand the complexities of me in the same way that we have you for a little over an hour today and that's my window into melissa yet 
I have 24 hours in a day. So you have an hour in my life. I have 24. So in that very simplified dynamic, like that's what we're talking about. And then you get politicians who are like, boom, evil, deadly, worst thing ever. And then it just perpetuates that, that fear that's so ingrained in our human existence. And it's so our brains, are built, our brains are built for that bias, right? Like they are built so to, built for it. The, the no contact with Trump supporters thing, how much of it has to do with people not wanting to see themselves in the person that they hate that is on the mm-hmm. other side? Because if I get to know you, I'm going to find out what I already know. And that is that we do have a lot in common. But mm-hmm. there are these things that I that I already know about me and about you that we don't agree on. So, like, I don't want to see me and you Trump supporter. Like, because what if we do agree on something? What does that say about me? Mm-hmm. Is, is that a factor? Uh, maybe. Uh, what I hear here, like in terms of people's, you know, what people say consciously in terms of what's what's coming up for them is is more about self betrayal, about losing themselves, about losing their fundamental values in some way by coming to the table. Like that's the the fear is I can't make room for you, and and without that, in some way, annihilating me you know, and the things that I'm, I'm committed to, or the, you know, the way someone would state that in a more simple way is just like, I can't come to the table with someone who I see as harmful without them acknowledging that harm. Like we can't just sweep all of this underneath the rug. And like that, that image of the hotel Corona in a way that was the, that was the image that drove my Palestinian friends crazy who'd been involved in dialogue work. Like, Mm -hmm. Don't pretend we can have this like power blind utopia, you know, where we're all going to ride off into the sunset together and sing Kumbaya. And like, we can just, you know, like, oh, we can just leave our identities behind and everything's great, you know, <laughs> right? Like, like we got to face the music here. Like there is, there is an occupation, you know, like in, in their language, as I see it, like there is a, there are real harms being committed, mm-hmm. right? People are suffering. People are dying. Like while we're having this conversation. It's a crap ahead, explanation Reddy. of that I would use growing up in Indiana in the eighties and nineties is what I heard all the time was like, Oh, I don't want to like very large anti-gay sentiment. So it was like, Oh, I can't hang out with, I can't be around. I can't talk to a gay person. Cause I don't want to get any gay on me. I don't want, I don't want them to turn me gay. Mm. Like there's this oh, sentiment that, so that, that, that that's totally. real. Like that, that would happen. And yeah. I think that mm-hmm. goes beyond just that. Sentiment. Right. It goes in. I'm going to be infected somehow. Right. This is, it yeah. Just coming into contact with you is going to be contagious. Yeah. Me. It's, it's yeah. such a fascinating thing. Like this idea of identity, which I am perpetually fascinated by. Rodney and I talk about it often as a result of our work to find who we truly are. Because mm. like, if we were to really break down the categories of identity, if we were to hierarchy it, like we are literally human beings first, all of us, same thing, but none of us identify as a human being first. We identify as all our subgroups. If we could somehow at least start there, it creates it, but being human is hard. It's actually easier to be religious or it's easier to be um, whatever it may be, whatever you identify as than it is to truly be human, um, which is a really existential sentiment and thought process. But I don't know that there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing there other than me making a comment. I think it's easier, the more defined the group is. Like yeah. I think about my various Christian 
um, upbringings and like where they were, where I was in them versus where I am now, like there's bounds and there's rules. Like I just, I know how to operate because I got the rules. Like it's like, and they're told to me, I don't have to. Right. Yeah. Like I don't have to go figure anything out uh, versus just being human, just being me. Like that's, there's a lot of work there. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. We're going to take a little break here. I want to tell you about something pretty amazing that we stumbled upon. A little ways back, we interviewed this amazing dude, Kwame Bowen, and he shared with me after the episode that his mother is a poet. And what's awesome about that is that he has all of her writings and all her poems, but what he doesn't have is her reading them. That inspired Keith and I to then start recording videos for our daughters. And as we started recording those videos, we started running into the challenges, the challenges of Where are we going to send them to our daughters? How are we going to get them to them? Where are we going to save them? Is it going to be Google Drive? Is it going to be OneDrive? And then along came GiftPod. It's an audio memory that you can record and give as a private podcast. What they're going to do is edit, add music, and produce the audio that you provide them into a professional podcast that you can share with your family members for any purpose. We use it for our daughters in the future. All right, so check it out. In the write-up for this podcast, you're going to see a link to GiftPod. If you use promo code MIC10, you're going to get a discount. And uh, leave some amazing memories for your friends, family, loved ones, maybe for yourself. Why don't you time capsule this for yourself? I don't know. So check them out. Giveagiftpod.com. MIC10 promo code. Um, you know, wanna, we, we sometimes talk about the that one of the outcomes of our work is a kind of robust rehumanization. Like it's not just like, Oh, I'm human. You're human. You know, yeah. like we can, we can right. it, like have totally. dinner together and, yeah. but it's like a robust rehumanization. Yes. Like I see you as you are and you yes. see me as I am not as the cartoonish evil car- yes. caricature, but I see you and I, and you see me. And the, I think that one of the, one of the obstacles to talking about that, you know, you said, like, fundamentally, who we are is, we are human beings first, like, there's a resistance that comes up around that kind of language, because people don't want to feel like the differences and the harms, the difficult things are going to be swept under the rug, are going to be compartmentalized, are going to be forgotten. And one of the principles of our methodology is directness, Mm -hmm. to go towards the heat, to go towards differences, not commonalities. Mm. Like part of how robust rehumanization happens is by not bracketing anything. Like we can we can get in there, we can go towards our indifferences, we can name them and gain clarity about what, where they really lie and investigate them. And that's part of the process of robust rehumanization. And part of what happens is that if we go towards our if we go towards common ground and commonalities. First of all, like the differences tend to rear their heads in destructive and ugly ways. Yeah. They um, they become something we fear. They become something that is like festering, and we don't feel like that's re- like the real stuff is being addressed. If we go towards our differences, more often than not, what happens is we agree. We realize we agree about ninety eight percent of the picture, or we realize that we have ninety eight percent in common. Like we are so much alike, and that two percent becomes generative. Like we can learn from it. We can. Um, tackle it. We can see each other and how each other's facing, experiencing something very different. Yeah, I think there's, it's funny just the words like seeing ourselves because there's everything that we say these days has some sort of political connotation. Um, 
we're human race first, right? Like they become some tropes that Uh are, um, so I appreciate you digging in because that's exactly what I mean, right? Like it isn't just, oh, we're humans. Cause then what that does is it, it degrades from the actual dehumanization that happens. You take an America race as a particular construct. There is a, a conversation that's often happens is, yeah, but it's like, we're, we're human race first. Um, let's, let's start there. It's like, yeah, but as a, as a black person in America, you've been dehumanized for almost the entire existence of the country. So we need to address that. Like we can't overlook it and we like to overlook it in America. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm glad. So I appreciate you adding that context this is exactly what I mean. And you did it in a far better way than I would have. Um, my question is, where did you grow up? <laughs> uh, where did I grow up? I grew, I'm a fellow Midwesterner. Yeah. It sounds like we're all, we all grew up in the Midwest. Uh, is that right? I, no, I grew no? up in the Northeast. Oh, okay. You grew up in the yeah, Northeast yeah. and then landed in Cleveland. Yeah. And did you say you grew up in Indiana, Rodney? I did. Yeah. I grew yeah. up in Indiana. Okay. I grew up in central Illinois, three hours okay. south of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Champagne-ish. Uh, yeah, even a little less cosmopolitan and um, heterogeneous than Champagne. So Bloomington like, Normal, if you know where that is. Yeah, I don't. We yeah. both lived in Chicago. I lived in Chicago for 10 and a half years. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I know Chicago and then Illinois, right? Yes. Yeah. I grew up in the rest of Illinois. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. The cornfield in my backyard. Of- yeah. Pence likes to say. Mine, mine too. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's from Indiana. Um, Did anything about your upbringing drive your desire for this work? Or was it something you found later? Yeah. I definitely think my upbringing shaped, propelled me into this work. Um, You know, in most places in America today, being Jewish is not like a huge marker of difference, marginalization, et cetera. But where I grew up, it was, um, this was, you know, very much the evangelical kind of heartland, lots of people praying for my soul, virtually all my friends, um, as a child and crosses left in our front yard and some kind of extreme incidents of my childhood. Mm. And, you know, my bat mitzvah photos are me and 40 blonde girls. I was kind of just outside the common paradigm by being a brunette, you know, (laughs) Um, so, uh, that I think I became the spokesperson for the Jewish people, but also like learned the importance of, of crossing boundaries skillfully for your own. Survival. Or, uh, you know, I liked it. I didn't think of it that way. I think that, um, I didn't think of myself as targeted at the time, although, whenever I was around other Jewish people, which would be once a year, I went to this little summer camp in Southern Illinois for Jews from Northern Kentucky and Southern Missouri. And we would all kind of cling to each other for dear life. Like <laughs> feel like we were, you know, finally attractive, <laughs> you know, like there was really like, just this kind of, Oh yeah. Like I'm in the this norm. Now. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't think of it that way. I think I, I actually like got a high from it, which I think drove me into a life of, of dialogue work. Like I really, I liked interrupting groupthink. I liked um, helping people see the thing that they weren't see, seeing by being the dissenting voice. And I also learned to invite that voice that wasn't being heard into the room. So I think it's because I was at an elementary school where my father was 
sweeping to the school to, to explain to my teachers again and again that singing songs about Christ our Savior isn't inclusive. Um, you know, again and again every year that when I went to Israel and I heard the national anthem, I was asking, who does this national anthem not represent? Where are they? And I want to listen to them. You know, like who is does not feel represented by this? Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I had that kind of uh, bifocal vision is, is how I think of it, where you're inside and you're outside simultaneously and thinking about who's outside, whatever I'm in. Like I'm always looking for the person who feels excluded by what's happening. Um, At, uh, so I think that that was driven by my childhood experiences. When did you take on that mantle of being a spokesperson? Was that conscious? Was it unconscious or was it something you did later looking back? It's it's hard to say, but already by the time I was in fifth grade or so, I wanted to like go into my class and share Jewish rituals because I knew if I didn't, they would never experience it. Yeah. You know, like I was, I was it. So I was going to be the only Jew that they met in their lives. and. Uh, at least for a long time. And I wanted them to experience the beauty of it. And I wanted them to experience that there was meaning outside of their faith as well. And just to be that kind of interruption that allows people to see that that it's possible that truth dwells in more than one place. It fascinates me because I have been that for a lot of people, but I was not conscious of it. That existence of, right, you said something, Melissa, that you didn't feel targeted. This is a common theme with people that we've talked to who are on, who are okay bridging the gap and helping bring people along is because they didn't feel consistently like a victim or like they were victimized, right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm not saying don't feel victimized. You just didn't. And it helped you gain courage to do it. So where does, how did that come about? Is it your parents? And where did that courage come from to be able to say, hey, I want you to, I want you to experience this. Like that's bold. Especially in fifth grade, you know? Yeah. I I have no idea where it came from. I mean, you know, I, I've, my sister and I experienced the, had the same parents, same upbringing, and we experienced it all very differently. And I think that she felt much more targeted and uh, like in a way that um, was like, she felt kind of harmed by it. And I think for whatever reason, my disposition, I felt kind of excited by it, um, Mm -hmm. the opportunity of translating across worlds. And uh, you know, there's something about psyches, I guess, that we're just born with. That's under Annie, Uh, my brother and sister uh similar like they they yeah. remember things that i i've completely erased from my memory from from parenting all the way through to racial incidents like where people were like giving us crap for being black like don't even remember it um mm. which to keith's point i think it plays in because i somewhat relish being the only black dude in a room and getting to set the perspective or m- interrupt or or yeah. mess with people's heads <laughs> uh, I mean, like in a positive way, hopefully. Yeah. Like I, I kind of relish that. Um, that's, that's an interesting point, Keith. I never even thought about that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a consistent. <clears throat> we've talked to quite a few people, um, not just in the conversation work, but just willing to help that just have experienced their world in a more optimistic way, or a positive way, or ignored, or some something didn't click that said. I am, this is bad for me. 
So then you go into protective mode, you go into defensive mode, and we can all empathize, right? We can all, like with your sister, I can empathize with that. Like I would totally, I probably would have been your sister as a kid. And I probably would have relished in conflict as a result of it, right? Versus doing the work that you're doing, which I think is super important or else, you know, yeah. nothing, nothing changes. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, Rodney, if this, if this would resonate with you too. I don't know if I, if it was about a rosy or optimistic perception, I think it became an engine for me of mm. change. Like it, it was a, it felt like not that the world is good, but that this is my way of making change in the world. Like I've, I've actually thought of my dad going to my elementary school just as being that. like my first model of activism. Yeah, like this is activism. No, it's activism to say you can't sing this song because it doesn't represent everyone. And that um, I think that that it was like a fire in my belly almost, but but something to be done. Uh, like I said, skillfully, like I think that that's what was modeled, that you can do this diplomatically. I mean, it's actually something I think a lot of progressives have lost. It's all kind of agitation and shaming and protest politics. And there isn't a lot of like diplomatically through relationship building, we can make change that's kind of left. I wish I could say the exact same. Um, I look at it like that way now and probably towards high, some parts of high school and college, I did see that I could build bridges. Growing up, I think it was very much, it, it was similar. Like my mom has been an activist for, I don't know, since high school or since college. And so like I had a very good, uh, education on what was going on in the world and what was going on in the country and what that meant being a black man. Um, but I was very oblivious to like how people were seeing me. Mm. And so I was able to just do what I could do. Mm -hmm. I think I just had like, you feel like you had blinders on, on some level. There was some kind of like, yeah, sure. like I was just like, I was not responding to all the, the negative reactions around me. Mm. Um, and now I'm more to where you are. Like it's an engine. Like oh, I I can be in in a room in any room and feel comfortable. It doesn't matter. Um, I can also feel the discomfort. Like I know mm -hmm. it. I notice it. Like when I'm back in Indiana, like I feel things that I don't remember feeling growing up. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing I did. I just you compartmentalize in some way as a exactly. kid. Exactly. Yeah. Normalize. Yeah. That, I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, so it was very much, and and there's the learned survival part of it. Like for instance, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. A lot, I've gotten the comment, "Oh, you sound white." Oh, I thought you were white. Um, and you know, for me, a lot of the comments, a lot of the comments growing up would be like, "Well, what does it mean to sound white? What does it mean to have a white name? What does it mean to be black? My skin's brown." Um, like these are the kind of questions I was asking because I was just like, "This doesn't add up to me." But my mom was teaching me, like, "Hey." this is how you talk at school. And like, she was very actively teaching me how to code switch. So mm. I just wasn't aware of it until later. So wow. now it's just like, I'm a Swiss army knife, but there's a, an interesting component. There's this polarity in America, uh, specifically talking about our political dichotomy that, seemingly has gotten worse like an alternating domino right like so well we'll take bush bush is we'll start there he goes to war it takes a huge backlash from liberal left politicians that became 
anti-dialogue about why we went to war because it was a deem like it was you, you are either against it or for it. He gets elected. He he runs his term. Obama comes into office, and all of a sudden we have the rise of the Tea Party. Now there is from the right side no room for dialogue, and McConnell goes on this path of my number one objective is that Obama gets nothing through. He he doesn't he isn't able to do anything. Then Trump gets elected and it just gets worse on the left because it's like, how can we in any way sympathize with a human being who talks, treats and acts like this towards other human beings? And now with Biden, we have this whole, there is no talking to people about the fair uh, election process in the United States. And it seems like it keeps getting worse and we're just flip-flopping who's getting harder to talk to. Like, how do we stop that train from running off the tracks and crashing into the side of a bridge embankment? Isn't that the question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that thankfully, not thankfully, there is a whole uh, nascent movement and we don't have to go it alone. There's a whole ecosystem of, of people working on this. I mean, it's going to take, I think this will, this took generations it might be to get this, this podcast. bad, but, uh, and it will take generations to address it. Yeah, I mean, it was, the the analysis that you just gave was was really cogent, and it's a that was a very leader driven story, right? Like that that you know was about our leaders, and that's um, one of the understandings of what's happened. I think there's a lot of other things that have also played in in terms sure. of the shifts in how media and social media shape people's psyches and the polarization and siloing of of media itself, um, and the just the the geographic sorting ideologically in our country, which mm. I think is like one of the biggest factors, the, the mm. fact that people are much more than they were 40 years ago living in hyperpartisan areas where they have almost no contact with someone um, ideologically who thinks differently than they do. Speaking of of echo chambers, like just the um, the ways that oh, now are different now. That is that, that yeah. There's a lot of uh, research around this that 40 years ago there was much more ideological heterogeneity within many places um, than there is today. And there's been an ideological sorting process where people, where our political divides map onto our geographic and spatial divides to the point that people just don't come into contact with anyone who's going to push or stretch them because we've got deep blue enclaves and deep red enclaves and shades of blue within those enclaves. But, but purple places are an endangered species hmm. in the U.S. today. So there's, you know, there's there's so many root causes and problems, perfect storm of various things that are that are self-reinforcing and perpetuating. And we need so many different kinds of interventions. And we are only one small piece, but we really think a piece of this is changing people's storylines and perceptions of each other. Like going back to what I've said from the get-go about recognition, I see a lot of those same patterns in the US. And um, and it's why we made a short film that we released this year because we felt like it just wasn't enough to get people uh, in the room together or in the, you know, since March on Zoom calls to, together, we can only reach so many people that way and that we need to be producing cultural content that shifts our our understandings of each other mm -hmm. that can reach people on a bigger scale, like podcasts, like mm -hmm. films. That's been, you know, one, one of the many vectors of change that we're trying. Well, that film was awesome. It I, was. I have a quick question what i what i remember about bush is that people 
the the rhetoric around talking about the president was far more crass than in my history, which I you know I wasn't a hyper political person before college, but um, from but people I've talked to, their their recognition of it was like, hey, it's like this seems to be sliding down a hill. Like, how mm-hmm. would to talk about the office? And uh, I would I would put. Man, it's just I'm gonna slid. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna blame the evil empire for all of it. I'm yeah. gonna blame it. <laughs> I mean, you go um, back to Clinton and even today they're talking about Clinton the same like it's it's it goes back and back. Um but anyway, that's a longer conversation and with two minutes left, we have one final question. First I want to thank you for your time and thank you for joining. This has been such a pleasure. What would you leave people with? What would you have them think about? Uh, how, how would you mm. how would you like to leave this? Great question. Um, well, I'll stay on message because this is what a lot of what I've been saying on on this particular in this particular conversation. But I've been thinking of this TED talk uh, from Nigerian author Chimamanda Adichie called "The Danger of the Single Story." Mm. A lot in this time. Have you heard this TED talk? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful TED talk. She basically just talks about the dignity, dignity robbing act of thinking of other people as if they're one thing and one thing only. And I often think about the dignity robbing stories that we have about each other. And this is one of the things that drove me around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Like so many of the um, these kind of one-sided stories of they are bloodthirsty, they are aggressors, they just want to steal everything I have. Um, This is what leads us into intractable conflict. Um, And and we are swimming in those kinds of storylines about each other in the U.S. today. They are only brainwashed loonies uh, and who are morally bankrupt. And they are uh, driving us into societal chaos and socialism and want to take away our freedom. Like these kinds of, of storylines are what uh, what keep us from so many things as a country, um, from being able to just stay together as a democracy that where we can move forward and so- solve social problems. They can lead us into violence and all kinds of harm. And um, and I, I really just want to insert doubt, you know, like whatever whatever single stories that we've got about each other, go out and chase after the thinking proactively of people who um, th- who you think are that single story, investigate, talk to people, um, find opportunities. There are so many opportunities through the exploding dialogue space that we have um, to be in conversation, to stretch oneself and take in perspectives and ideas and humanity um, of the people with whom one uh, disagrees. Thank you.